What consumes you, controls you. I've always been one that cared about the way I look, my, my swag, my appearance, whatever. But it was worse in high school. I don't know what it was in high school. Maybe I'm just a teenager and I just wanted to impress people. Maybe I was a teenager and I just wanted that ultimate goal, a girlfriend, right? You know, I didn't want to be the guy singing all by myself. Like I didn't want to be that guy. And, and so I cared a lot about how I looked and appeared. I spent hours in front of the mirror just making sure I looked on point. I'm about to show you some pictures of me in high school. I'm already embarrassed that I actually put this up here, but I want you to give you a glimpse of what I used to look like and my swag in high school. And so first picture, oh my goodness. Like this was, y'all, I mean, stunner shades were like the thing back then, but this is like, this is my MySpace profile picture for sure. Like I know that this was it, but I, it was more than that. It wasn't just, the shades, I made sure I was matching all the time. Like I was obsessed with matching. Like if I was wearing a white jacket, I need to make sure I was wearing the white hat and even the glasses, I had different types of shades. That's how you know it's kind of too much. But even the shades, the rim were white and uh, had the diamond earrings, which I still have now, which is awesome. Um, but it went further than that. I mean, this picture, I can't believe I'm showing this one. But I had the haircut, the, that Backstreet Boys in sync, like just the part in the middle kind of haircut. I thought I was cool. But if, for those guys who are looking, look at the accessory. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about because guys, you remember that silver chain that we would always wear that we would get at the mall for like $20 and we'd put it on. We thought we were the coolest, but at the end of, at the, end of the day, it would turn our neck green. Like that was, that was just, I was like, man, I'm going to kill him with this thing. Like I, I just thought I was that cool, but it was, I think it's beyond high school. This is my mom raised me like this to dress nice, to have this swag. And so like even mine, a chocolate bear as a kid with the Dalmatian tucked in. Bro, look at those socks and sandals. Can't nobody rock that like, like me. I was so vain. I did think the song was about me, right? But as you're trying to keep up with your appearance and your look, nothing ruins that like a rainy day. Nothing ruins your swag like a rainy day. What consumes you controls you. I hated rainy days. It was the worst. Why? Because you have to watch out for the puddles and getting your clothes wet, your hair, whatever. And so I'm not joking when I say that in high school, I had to protect my swag. And so I didn't want to get my shoes dirty and messed up. So no joke, I would find Walmart bags in my kitchen, kind of in that the underneath the sink where we keep all the Walmart bags. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? I don't know why we keep them, but we have them. Um, and so I would literally go to school and put on these Walmart bags so that the rain and the puddles wouldn't ruin my shoes. And I got so, so like, like so caught up with it, I did the duck, the duck walk. You know what I'm talking about? Where you don't want to crease your shoes, so you're like, ah, oh, ah. Oh. And so... There was that, but what about my swag? So I would always, going to school, when I had my backpack on, I was like, you know what? I can't get my clothes wet too. And so I would rock that yellow poncho, 
that your mom had in the closet you're embarrassed to wear. But you're like, you know what? I can't get my swag messed up. And so I would, I would put on this yellow poncho and I put it over my backpack, which is pretty bad because it makes you look like a hunchback wherever you go. And so I was so consumed with protecting my swag that I would put this on, but also my hair. I just spent hours putting gel in my hair. And if I'm going to make a real confession, in high school, I, I had a lot of acne, okay? So I'd pop the zit. Great, you wanted to know that, right? And then I would go borrow my mom's makeup and just dab it on there so that no one could saw that. I had, am I the only one that did that? Okay, well, I, I guess I needed Jesus in high school, Okay. But I just put out this makeup on and my hair, so I can't get my hair wet. So on a rainy day, I opened up my umbrella. Some of y'all are like, don't do it, it's superstitious. Come on now. And so literally, I'd be walking to school like this, just trying to protect my swag. Like, the girls are gonna love it when I take this poncho up. You know, I don't know what it is, but I just look ridiculous. I look absolutely Ridiculous, kind of opposite of swag. And it's so funny, when, when you're consumed by something, you do everything you can to protect it, don't you? When you're consumed by something, you're like, I need to protect it by all means because if that thing gets rattled or shaken, you're almost paralyzed. Like if you're consumed by the things of the world and the things of the world are, are rattled and shaken, you become paralyzed. You start to say, man, what, what's going to happen now? And so what consumes you controls you. But can I say this with this illustration? Oftentimes, the things that consume you will make you look foolish. Oftentimes, the things that consume you will make you look foolish. And you have two choices in this life. You can be consumed by the things of the world and look foolish to God, or you can be consumed by the things of God and oftentimes look foolish to the world. See, but here's the reality. Whichever one you choose puts you in submission to that thing. What I mean by that, if, if you're choosing to be consumed by the things of the world, you are saying that that is now, you're putting that in authority of your life. Or if you're saying, hey, now I want to be consumed by the Lord, that means you're putting him in authority of your life. I don't know about you guys, but I would rather be in submission to someone who is all-knowing, knows the plans of my life, and, 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 can, and can know what, what is good for me, ultimately, rather than something that will eventually fade away. So today, as we continue our series in the book of Acts, I wanted us to discuss the effects of idolatry. Idolatry. Idolatry is not a new topic. It's not a new discussion. It's not a new word or, or thing that you don't know about. But here's why I'm so passionate about it. I truly believe that in our culture, we don't really know what idolatry means. I think that in our culture, in America, we don't really know what it means to have idols. So in that sense, we say, I don't, I don't suffer with idolatry. See, in America, idolatry is like someone that, that has a gold statue and worships it and prays to it. That's what we imagine, or we imagine that some people will have little figurines on their dresser that they pray to. That's idolatry. 
Do we dare even say, sometimes we might say, choosing our favorite sports team above God might be idolatry. I don't know if we'll go that far yet. Choosing our favorite football team, basketball team above God, that might be idolatry. I'm not sucked in though. And so I just did a little study through scripture of what idolatry is. And hopefully understanding the definition of idolatry will give us an opportunity to repent from those idols. So let's look in Ezekiel chapter 14. Ezekiel 14, starting in verse one, it says this. Now some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, verse two. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, these men have set up their idols in their what? Say that again. They have set up their idols in there. So it wasn't about a statue. It wasn't about an item. Idolatry starts in your heart. Idolatry starts from within. Ironically, what, what is in your heart, the mouth speaks. And that's how idolatry forms. In Colossians, Paul is talking in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 5, he says this, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul says to covet is idolatry. Basically, he's saying when you want something so bad and you think that it's good for your life, that's idolatry. Changes the game of what we think idols are, doesn't it? 1 Samuel 15, verse 23 says, For rebellion is as sin of witchcraft. Ready? This one got me. And stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. So let me break it down to you what idolatry is. Hopefully this helps define it. Idolatry is coveting in your heart something you think is good for you, stubbornly pursuing it instead of the things that God already said is good for you, which is himself. Idolatry is coveting in your heart, wanting something that you think is good for you, stubbornly pursuing it instead of pursuing God, this is the garden 101. This is Adam and Eve, right? They had everything. They even had communion with the father, but they saw the fruit and they coveted it in their heart and stubbornly pursued it instead of pursuing the Lord. That's what idolatry is. Idolatry is when you give your love, your attention, your time to something else instead of God. See, if I were to ask everyone in here or everyone online to write down or list what's your priority in life, what would you say? God, family, friends, maybe work, right? Maybe working out. And we would say that. But if I said, hey, when it comes to the amount of time you spend in each, now prioritize it. Who is actually first? Is it really God? Someone will say, well, no. Well, you know what? I, I pray on the way to work or I pray all the time, which, yes, you should be doing. Pray without ceasing. But you need to have a set, devoted time with the Lord. 
Saying that, oh, I pray all the time while I do something else, that would be like my wife is in the back here. That would be like me saying, hey, we're in church together, and so this is my date night. Ridiculous, right? Same thing when it comes to the God. We need to to have such a devoted time with him. I would hate to stand before God in heaven and say, hey, I gave you 30 minutes a day. And he's like, oh, didn't you give an hour a day to your workout, to your machine? I'd hate to be in that position. What are you consumed by? Is it a sports team? Is it entertainment? Is it a person? You know, for me personally, I mean, if I can just be honest, before I got married, man, I was so consumed with trying to find a spouse to the point where my prayer life to the Lord was less about me having this marriage with him and me saying, oh, man, be that magical genie and find a wife for me. And I realized even in my prayer life that, that the desire for marriage, which is good, became an idol for me because I was pursuing it more than I was pursuing the Father. What consumes you? Is it a way of life? Is it politics? You know, before the worship team got up here, I talked to one of them. I said, hey, I know Colossians says, hey, do everything with excellence unto the Lord. But if that excellence becomes an idol and you forget why you're on the stage, then you've missed it. It's the same thing in worship. Hopefully, Just a few minutes ago, when you were worshiping, you weren't worried about the hows and the whats, but rather the why you're here. Hopefully, you're not worried about what you're going to receive from this message or the feelings that you'll get after you leave this door, but rather how and why you are here, which is to worship the one true king. I hate that if we come to church expecting to receive something, when God's like, no, 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 I wanted you to give something. Idolatry is coveting in your heart what you think is good for you and stubbornly pursuing it rather than the things that God had already said is good. And so turn with me. Actually, you know what? Here's a question I wrote down. Why is it so bad to have idols? Why is it so bad? The reality is this. Idols require worship. Idols require worship. And if you are worshiping something other than God, you are robbing him from that worship. Idols require worship. Idols require time. Turn with me to Acts 17. Acts 17, the New Testament, we've been going through the book of Acts. In Acts 17, Paul is preaching uh, preaching in Athens. And up into this moment, God has been moving through the apostles. We've seen the gospel being spread, which is incredible. And then we get to Acts 17, pause in Athens. Verse 16 starts off like this. It says, now while Paul waited for them at Athens, let me stop right there. Like, why is that significant? While Paul waited, aka this wasn't his final destination. He was going somewhere else. It's equivalent 
to us if we had a connecting flight and we had a layover at a different, different airport. That's where, like, kind of what he was doing. He was just waiting to go somewhere else. It wasn't his place. Now, this is significant because for me personally, I don't know how many times I have wasted or not seized an opportunity to talk, talk to someone about Jesus or talk to them about their sin because it wasn't my place. Oh, I'm not going to say anything. That's, it's just not my place. You see a lost person and, and you have an opportunity to preach the gospel or tell them about Jesus, but you're like, no, you know what? Someone with a better relationship should do that. This is not my place. Or you see the evils of the world or the unrighteousness of the world and you see that and you're, you're around it and God has given you the ability to speak, but you're like, you know what? It's just not my place. Oh, how I have regretted there are many times that I've just said, Lord, it's just not my place. I'll stay quiet. But if you see, it says his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. His, his spirit was provoked. It was burdened. Something was in him saying, I, he, see, he saw the idols, all the worship that was going to other gods or other idols besides the one true God. And he was like, man, I can't help but do something. See, when you have a burden, you have to speak up. When you have a burden, you have to speak up. See, I think we get so caught up in having a burden for the lost people, but we never speak up about Jesus. We have a burden for our lost family members and we'll say what? Oh, I'm praying for them. No, no, no. Speak up and tell them about Jesus. Not just about a belief system, not just about a church. Tell them about the gospel that changed your life because maybe it would change theirs. When you have a burden... You have to speak up. Verse 17 says, therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace. How often? Daily. Not a one-time thing. Not a checklist. Hey, I shared the gospel with my friend once. He didn't receive it. Let's move on. No, daily with those who happen to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. Epicureans were people who pursued pleasure as the chief goal in life. Stoics were, were philosophers of, of personal ethics that virtue is the only good. And they said to this, ready? Check this. And some said, what does this babbler have to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. They called Paul a babbler. I don't know about you, but that's not a code word for good preacher, okay? When he says a babbler, most likely he's not, Paul's not good with his words. He's not the greatest speaker. Matter of fact, if you know anything about Paul, Paul once taught a sermon and someone was listening in the windowsill and he fell asleep because he was so bored and he fell out of the windowsill, fell on the ground and was dead. Like, if someone did that from the balcony right now, I'd be like, yo, this is not my thing. You know what I mean? Maybe I shouldn't do this. Luckily, they resurrected him. <laughs> but Paul was a babbler, and history even says that he wasn't even the best looking. He wasn't. But check this. God still used him. God still used a babbler. Why? Because he had burden and passion and was willing 
Sometimes we sing or tell the Lord, I'm an empty vessel, but we, would, we don't want to babble for him. We want to make sure we got everything right of how we would say things. Here's what you need to know. One man with God is always a majority. One man with God is always a majority. If God is with you, who can be against you? Let's be babblers for God. Let's be babblers for Jesus. We don't have to have the right words to say. We don't have to. I mean, that's what we depend on the Holy Spirit for. I think so many times we, we uh, idolize even our own abilities so that whenever we are in the situation, we're like, oh, no, 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 I can't do it. One man with God is always a majority. Verse 22 says this. And Paul stood in the midst of the Arapagus and said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all these things you are very religious. Now, this is not a compliment, okay? This is not, wow, you're a great religious man. They're saying, hey, you've been so consumed about the knowledge of religion that you have forgotten the one true God. In verse 23, he says, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Now, legend says this. Some 600 years before Paul saw this altar to the unknown God, there was a reason why they built an altar to the unknown God. See, 600 years prior to this, history says that there was a plague that was wiping people out. And the Greeks are looking to every other God to heal them. Please, they're praying to this God, this God, this idol, whatever. And and the plague still is wiping people out. Then comes this one holy, godly man. And they say, hey, can you help us? We're so desperate. He goes, okay, you ready? If you do exactly what I tell you, then then we can get rid of this plague. I said, whatever it is. He said, get all your sheep that you have in the morning let them all go. They'll be hungry, but, but here's what I want you to do. Any of them that instead of eating, they just lay down and just lay there. Build an altar to this God and sacrifice to him. So the next morning, they're like, okay, we'll see if this works. I don't think it's going to work. They let out all the sheep. And then this holy man says, if you have compassion enough for God to heal If you have compassion enough to forgive, then whatever sheep that you want, make it lay down instead of grazing and eating, and we will give that. We will sacrifice to you. And sure enough, one lamb lays down, one sheep lays down, another sheep, another sheep, another sheep. And the Greeks said, wow, this God is actually working miracles because the plague is done. And they build this altar to the God this unknown God, but he was, they were unknown at that point. He was unknown at that point. And Paul tells them in verse 23, therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God who, who made the world and everything in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with, with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life breath and all things. He's saying, Paul's saying, hey, that God that, that once saved you 600 years ago can save your eternity. 
That one God that saved your people from a plague can save you from your sins. Come on, I think someone needs to hear this today, that that one God that worked miracles days or years before can still work a miracle in your life. That one God that that showed up when you didn't expect it can still show up in your situation, in your uncertainty, if you would just trust in him and worship him. See, there's so many other different gods that they had, but he says, the basic principle that there is only one true God. There is only one true God. This is fundamental. It's not profound. But until you grasp this, that there is only one true God, and you've missed the whole thing, but it's more than just a knowledge of God. See, because you can know that there is a God, but he can be unknown to you personally. You can know that there is a God, But if you don't have a relationship with him, he can be unknown to you personally. Don Richardson says this. Once men reject the omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent God in favor of lesser deities, they eventually discover that it takes an infinite number of lesser deities to fill the true God's shoes. Basically, unless you have a personal relationship with the one true God, you try to fill that void with everything. But he can only fill that. John 17, 3 says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. That's what eternal life is. It's not just about a raising of a hand or, or standing up. or It's not just about a baptism. It's about knowing the Father intimately. It's about knowing him. And continuing in, verse seven, or in chapter 17, verse 26 through 31, Paul preached this one true God to, to these philosophers on Mars Hill, these very knowledgeable people. He talked to them about the resurrection of Jesus and repentance. And this is how they respond in verse 32. It says, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Some mocked. See, the resurrection wasn't a, pos- uh, 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 it wasn't a popular idea amongst Greek philosophers. In that moment, Paul looked foolish, right? Oftentimes, the things that consume you whether it be the Lord, will make you look foolish to the world. So they looked foolish. They mocked him. But then he continued while others said, hey, we will hear you again on this matter. Now, I wondered why some people were like, oh, man, I'm very interested with what you're saying. Not because he was a good speaker or persuasive. Remember, he's a babbler. But maybe I thought to myself, what if Paul had such a strong burden, he was so persistent, and that he, he, he spoke with passion, he actually believed in Jesus. I know that's like, you're like, what? Of course. I think so many times that when we, we talk about Jesus, it's scripted. That I have the ways to tell my testimony. But if lost people can actually see our eyes and how Jesus actually, what he did in our lives and how he, he changed us, then maybe some would be interested. But it's not just a religion. That's a personal relationship. And then verse 33, so Paul departed from them. However, some men joined him and believed. 
Oh, that we would have such a burden, a passion for Jesus. And when people were around us, not because of the way we talk, but because our life transformed in him, that they would believe in Jesus. See, what consumes you controls you. And oftentimes, what consumes you will make you look foolish. But one man with the one true God is the majority. We just need to speak up. We need to speak up on behalf of Jesus. So what do we do? What do we do? Really simple. I've got two things that we can do, real practical. Number one is this. We need to repent from all idols. We need to repent from all idols. Now, hopefully that you have an understanding of what idols are now. And it's not just, oh, I don't, I don't worship a sports team or I don't worship a gold statue. But maybe there's something in your heart that has been pulling you away from communing with the Father. Maybe there's something in your heart that has taken a lot of attention from God. So we need to print, repent from all idols. And then simply, number two, is that we need to be consumed by the one true God. So here's what I want to do, because I don't want to rush this moment. Whether you're here in person or you're online, I want us to have just a self-reflection evaluation moment. Because I don't want us to just say, okay, I need to worship the one true God on top of some of the things we need to get rid of. Because the reality is we need to just get rid of some of the things so that God can fill us fully. So here's what we're going to do. I want to take just a few minutes, you in your seat, you at home, whatever. Either close your eyes, pray, and I want you to ask the Lord God, if there's anything in my life that I, that is, that I have shown more attention to, that I worship more than you, will you reveal that to me? Maybe it is a person. Maybe it is a thing. Maybe it is whatever that is. Lord, reveal it to me. And when he reveals it, may you start to repent. Repent means the changing of your mind. It means to turn 180 from it. And so let's do that.